Welcome to Waco Watch, the podcast. I am Dewana McCray, and I am here with Winston partners, Danielle Williams and Mike Thomasulu. So today was an exciting day. It was the first day of the VLSI technology versus Intel trial in Waco before Judge Albright. Um, so there are four key things that we want to talk about from this first day of trial. The first, of course, are the COVID precautions that were in place. Jury selection is another topic, opening statements, and the first witness. So Mike and Danielle, how are you both doing today? And we can jump right in. Doing great, Dewana. I hope you are. Yeah, ditto, Dewana. Good to be here. Down here in Waco, it's finally warmed up and a good day, first day of trial. So we have to give a lot of thanks again to Mike for attending in person in Waco and being able to come out and report on this. So Mike, starting with the COVID precautions that were in place, could you just give us the highlights and the rundown on that? I was here for the first trial and I think the, the precautions are far more significant and more evolved than they were. You know, I think everybody you know, in the whole country has better understanding of the things that can be done. And certainly I thought the precautions that were taken were bordering on unprecedented. Of course, they have the testing requirements for all the people associated with either party to be tested, but there was an automatic temperature check, basically like a, a device that you, know, you put your face up to and it automatically reads your temperature before you enter the building. There was PPE that was set out. There was N95 masks that were available for anybody that needed one. The courtroom itself was Judge Albright's courtroom number one, which had a very high level of circulation. It's a large courtroom with very high ceilings and they had air purifiers in there as well. The jury was pretty spaced out. There was ultimately only seven jurors selected and they're very well spaced out. A, a much fewer number of people attending the trial are allowed in the courtroom. So it, it's very uncrowded in the courtroom. There's an overflow room with a, I guess you call it like a closed circuit TV so that people in another overflow room, presumably largely the people associated with the large trial teams that each of these parties has, uh, are able to not be crowded into the courtroom, but can, can still see the action, but from a closed circuit uh, feed. And I think that closed circuit feed, I'm advised, was also made available to in-house representatives of the parties. So they've done a lot of, of, I think, really good precautions and everybody was masked, the jurors were masked. The, the, again, the famous dunk tank is where the witnesses were. So the, the you know, as far as when the trial started, that that was all kind of the, the precautions that were in effect. And then what they did for the jury selection was they spaced out the jurors. And then, so they had a few of them in the, in the main courtroom and then they had the others in the overflow courtroom with no other lawyers or anything. And they spaced them all out. And then instead of having them talk, they would raise their hands to indicate affirmance or, or, or not to certain propositions. So do you know anyone at Intel? And if, if people raised their hand that that was noted. And then, so rather than having the I suppose, increased risk of COVID transmission that comes with a large number of people talking, they just used the hand raising instead. And then they had the, the, the jurors come up for individual questioning. I, I believe they were in the dunk tank for that. So I think it was really thoughtful and pretty comprehensive. And you know, certainly no human to human interaction can be 100% safe with respect to COVID or anything else for that matter. But I, I thought the precautions were thorough and thoughtful. This is Danielle. I was able to listen to it uh, remotely, which was pretty cool. 
And uh, it sounded like it went pretty seamlessly, uh, particularly when they were questioning the individual jurors. And so when I'm getting that across across the, the audio feed, it, it must have, I can only imagine how seamless it was there in court. That sounds extremely interesting and extremely thorough as well. Um, I've, I've never been at a trial where the jury were posed questions and then they were actually raising their hands to say yes or no. So it sounds like the COVID precautions are, are extremely thorough. But sticking with the jury selection, Mike and Danielle, you mentioned that there were seven jurors at the end. Could you just give a brief overview of the jurors and selection? Because we were not allowed in the room to observe the jury selection, but could only sort of perceive it remotely, it was a little hard to figure out the characteristics of, of each of the jurors that was selected. In other words, you know, juror number 90 was such and such a person, it wasn't always clear. And then the peremptory challenges were, um, you know, those are done off the record. But what I think we could say, ultimately, the result of the jury, I can describe it as a diverse jury. There's three men and four women. Of the four men, there's two older Caucasian males and two African-Americans. And the three women seem to be you know, in the category of 30 to 40, 25 to 35-year-old women. So, and they appear to be sort of from all walks of life, which seems to be what was representative of, of the, the Vordire panel. I don't know what your views were, Danielle, but I was surprised by how many different types of people were being, you know, we were seeing in the panel. There was someone whose husband worked uh, as a, in both hardware and software for a Bitcoin mining company, for instance. Danielle, if you want to comment on the diversity of what you saw in terms of the jury panel? I agree, Mike. I was impressed by the different backgrounds of all of the the folks, whether it was what the individual jurors did or what family members did for did for a living. Also continue to be impressed by uh, the number of people who enjoy the great outdoors. Uh, I think it's inspiration for for all of us. <laughs> there was a group of jurors from a very diverse background and the experiences that they that they shared with but the lawyers was interesting to me. Yeah, I think they draw from 17 counties for this jury pool. I think that's what the judge told me. So uh, I mean, that's, that's a lot of different counties. So Mike and Danielle, let's speak about the opening statements. And I'm particularly interested in the opening statements because as you both know, much of the record is sealed. So this would be the first time we truly get to hear from the parties and um, get a taste and feel and understanding of their side of the case. So could you just give a highlight and overview of each side's opening statement? Yeah, Dewan, I'm happy to. They, so there were very different opening statements and frankly, I've talked to different people about them and they've had different reactions. VLSI's opening statement was delivered by Morgan Chu and it was you know, delivered in sort of a frank, under understated fashion. It wasn't you just talking directly to the jury without really apparently any notes, not, not an enormous number of slides, and you know in a pretty measured way, not not nothing bombastic or sort of over the top or really frankly impassioned. But some people I talked to thought it was a very very effective opening, and some people were offered less effusive praise. I personally thought it was effective and he was communicating directly to the jury and seemed to be getting his points across. One of the things that 
is always interesting in these cases is what exactly are you going to say about your plaintiff? And Danielle, I don't know if, if, if you had a reaction to this innovation cycle. That's what the, the plaintiff characterized. VLSI is playing a role in the innovation cycle. And they said that they had bought these patents from another company, NXP. And NXP is obviously a significant operating company. And they had bought the patents from them as part of the innovation cycle. And the idea was of this sort of four-part innovation cycle that NXP you know, uses its R&D money to generate patents. And then when the patent office issues those patents, VLSI monetizes the patents, then the patent, then some of that money goes back to NXP to continue the, you know, the funnel back into R&D for the innovation cycle. And so that was you know, sort of the plaintiff's description of why what it's doing is benefiting America, benefiting society, benefiting innovation, and that it was sort of a team up with a significant operating company. I thought that that was an interesting way to characterize VLSI, uh, VLSI's contribution. I think uh, many of us would characterize them as a, as a non-practicing entity, a patent assertion entity, but to, to put them in the light of actually participating in an innovation cycle could make more sense to, to the business model that they're approaching. What I thought was interesting is the use of the language wait and see attitude for uh, describing the, the market's reaction to NXP's patents and VLSI's offering of the patents. So I'll be interested to see how that plays out through the trial. But you know what I didn't hear, Mike? And I want you to make sure that my ears did not deceive me. I didn't hear the plaintiff talk about dollars and cents. So, Dewana, you were talking about this would be the first time to hear to hear some of the information because so much of the pleadings in this in the papers in this case are under seal. We still don't know what the value is from the plaintiff's perspective or the defense perspective. In the opening, Morgan Chu said that there was nearly a billion units of the accused device sold, but there was no damages figure stated. And so the question sort of I had and maybe other people had was, would Bill Lee respond to that? How would he respond to that in his, in his opening statement? Would he, for instance, say something like, they won't tell you what they want, but they know what they want. They're almost embarrassed to say it, but I'll tell you what they want. They, they want billions of dollars for these patents that they bought for pennies. But he didn't do that, and so it was sort of left untouched. But it was an interesting decision point by both of them just to not introduce the, you know, the sheer magnitude of the damages that we sort of suspect they're seeking. Um, so, Mike, you mentioned that Intel didn't respond directly to plaintiffs not mentioning a dollar amount. How did Intel respond? Intel's opening was interesting. One of the things that they did was they definitely took the NPE issue straight on and kind of some questions based on the prior case of what was going to be allowed and what wasn't going to be allowed. But you know, they said, look, VLSI told you they're a small company, but what they didn't tell you is that they have two employees and they just recently got their second employee and that they don't make anything. They've never made anything and they've never participated in this cycle of innovation before. So they took the NPE issue directly on and they took it on indirectly in another way. Bill Lee used this term real world. So he, he would talk about, you know, Intel makes, has real world people solving real world problems, making real world products. 
and in the context of damages, which is one of the things you were asking about, Dewana, he talked about that you're going to hear, he said that, that the plaintiff's damages model is a six-factor test, something called the dime model. That, and he said, you know, these patents have transitioned hands. They originally came from Sigmatel, then they went to Freescale, and then they went to NXP, and then they went to VLSI. And then none of those transactions, did you ever hear anything about this six-point dime model? Because when Intel, we don't really want to talk about damages because there aren't any damages because we don't infringe the patents. But to, you know, to the extent it's worth mentioning, well, let me emphasize that what you'll see us present are real-world information, real-world things that you can see in black and white, how much Intel has paid when it slices uh, patents from other people, and how much these patents were worth when they changed hands the last four times. How effective do you think Intel's opening statement was for the jury specifically? It's hard to say, you know, because everybody's in mask and it's hard to it's hard to read people in general. But I think overall, the opening statement of Intel was what it was intended to be. It was short, it was effective, and it communicated the, the I would say the three themes that I discerned that they were intending to communicate. Number one was something as simple as we don't use this technology. The technology has never been used by anybody, including Sigmatel, Freescale, NXP, or VLSI. Number as to the 759 patent, Intel did it first, decided it could be done better, and abandoned that technology and has not used that in ages. And the third thing is that if there are any damages at all, they should be measured by the real world price of these patents. When these patents have been bought and sold in the past, that should be a, a, you know, the measure of the damages, as well as measure of licenses that Intel regularly takes for other similar technology. And so I thought his themes were, at least for a patent lawyer, pretty easy to understand. And he has a measured way about him, slightly, I would say, a bit more impassioned than than Morgan, but still measured and and you know just a reason you know a reasoned approach to communicating with the jury. I was interested in the information that the defense shared on the damages issue and uh, talking about the licenses and the fact that they're calling the former director of patent licensing for IBM. So I'll be interested to see uh, exactly what they get into with the real world approach that they uh, previewed in the, in the opening statement. Okay, so let's get to the witnesses. I know that the first witness presented today, Mike or Danielle, could you just give an overview? Who, who was the witness and what was the testimony on direct examination? So, so the first witness was named Jim. Spihar, and he is a vice president of research and development for NXP. Now, NXP isn't a party, but is the company that sold the patents to VLSI and presumably stands to, to gain some financial benefit if VLSI successfully monetizes these patents. So his direct really was to talk about how NXP is a, a good company with that's you know creates products for companies that are other well-known companies like Amazon and Google and makes microprocessors for vehicles and computers and anything you can think of and to talk about the pressures that semiconductor 
companies face that you know customers want things they want things cheap they want things they want the microprocessors to run fast and to and to to gobble up less power so the the point really was this increasing speed and saving power are important to compete and that this budget for R&D that NXP has is significant they have a 25 they spend 25% of their revenue he personally has a hundred person team that report to him in R and D and that they're kind of their core focus is product innovation and development. That's this is again, getting to this cycle of innovation. That's why they partner up with someone like VLSI to license the IP, you know, that they that VLSI supposedly licenses IP well and knows how to do it. And NXP really doesn't know how to determine who's using their IP and doesn't know how to license it. And so that that was sort of the the thrust I, I took of the first witnesses direct that, that he was trying to say why this lawsuit plays an important role in the supposed cycle of innovation. What are your takeaways from the cross examination? The cross examination was interesting because it was it was done by Joe Mueller, I believe his name is for Intel, and he brought a fair amount of passion, maybe even heat to the cross-examination and I'm certain it was intentional, but against a, you know, lay witness that was sort of answering the questions. It's just, it, it's not clear to me whether the jury was going to think that maybe it was a little too much heat or a little too much passion, but ultimately I think the cross-examination effectively demonstrated several things. Number one, that NXP at least is not aware of anyone ever who has used these patents, not Sigmatel, not Freescale, not NXP itself, and not VLSI. And then he took the cycle of innovation slide and he said, well, let's just go through this, right? So, so you, your first thing is that patents come to, to NXP. And he said, but that's not really true. These patents weren't issued to NXP. They didn't come out of innovation dollars from NXP. And then he went to the next part where he said that VLSI is licensing patents and providing money to NXP. And he says, well, you said that NXP doesn't really know how to license its patents, but isn't it true that NXP actually has more licensing attorneys than VLSI does? NXP has a licensing department and they've struck many license agreements over the years and VLSI has never struck any. And VLSI hasn't participated in the cycle of innovation because it's never given NXP any money. And so those were some of, I think that was the thrust of the main point of the cross-examination. And then on the redirect, Mark Mann made sort of one single point. He said, look, you said that you don't know whether if anybody's using these patents, but that, is that your job? And when this says no, he goes, do you have other people that do that kind of thing? He said, yeah, we have experts in this case that do that kind of thing. And so several of the jurors seem to be nodding their agreement that like, yeah, that's not his job. And I think that it's easy to Monday morning quarterback, but I thought it might've might brought a little bit too much heat to that first cross-examination. But again, it may be that they intended to do that because they want to show some indignation about being sued for a billion dollars where they believe that, that there's no merit to the claims. So Mike, it sounded like to me that uh, they raised the anography issue with this first witness on direct, but I didn't hear anything on cross-examination about anography. Did I miss that? 
No, no, that was definitely not something you missed. They, they didn't bring up the inography. It was only sort of a minor point that the witness brought up that the patents had scored well uh, on inography, you know, database. The other thing I guess I forgot to mention, which is kind of funny, is that so, you know, Morgan Chu in his opening had called the, the patents, the, the two patents, the stars, actually the heroes of, of the trial. And so in the cross-examination of the first witness, the, um, the Wilmer Hare lawyer said, you know, you, you know, you heard Mr. Chu call these patents the heroes of this. And he goes, now NXP, now it, it's never even looked at any of these heroes, right? It doesn't use the heroes. And so it, it was an interesting attempt by the defendant to you know, take the language of the plaintiff and sort of you know, leverage it to try to undermine the, the plaintiff's argument that these are important patents. We know from our pre-trial work uh, for our podcast that inography was an issue in the pre-trial motions and that the court allowed the information to be to be presented, or I guess I should say he didn't strike it. And so uh, I just thought it was interesting that with the first witness that they went out with inography. And I I don't know if that was strategy on the part of the of the plaintiff just to float it out there to sort of see what kind of objections it's, it was going to get, or if just to, I guess, get a sense of, of where they were going to have to go next on the, on the motions in Lemony or any uh, early morning motions from the, from the defendant. So I'll be interested to see how much uh, additional play inography gets. It seems like it would have to get a decent amount given the basis uh, that we've read about, but just thought it was interesting to to put it forward uh, with this witness uh, first thing. Yeah, I think they'll probably wait till they try to actually introduce the reports and then the fight will be on. I imagine Intel's lawyers didn't think the jury too, took too much out of this sort of brief mention of our patents got a high score, sort of like, so what? So that was kind of my take on it. I didn't think that they didn't really try to leverage the inography scores too heavily into the these patents or hero, the heroes of the play. So we'll see. Maybe they will be the heroes of the play at the end of the day. Maybe they won't. But I am looking forward to seeing the, 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 these little heroes in action tomorrow. Well, today sounded like a, a very interesting and busy day. I look forward to hearing all that happens tomorrow during day two of the trial. I'm Mike, Danielle, thank you so much. It's been lovely talking to you both and to the listeners until next time.